You can give it up. I had to watch that. I had to watch that multiple times before I came in today because the older I get, the more I cry at stuff. So just to make sure I wasn't a blubbering mess when I came up here, I had to watch that a couple of times because that's powerful. You know, we serve a God that says, you know, greater love has no man than this than to lay his life down for his friend. And uh, we worship a Jesus who, before we knew him, he came and died for us. It says, while we, we were still sinners, he came and died for us. And we talk all the time about how we don't want to get gospel amnesia and forget what Jesus did for us. But I also want to always have room in my memory for those people who maybe don't know me, definitely don't know me, who have gone off to serve and even die for our country so that we can have freedom, so we can worship freely, raise our families freely, celebrate freely this weekend, Memorial Day weekend. So let's remember them this weekend. And, and yes, we know the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day, but if you've served here or you are serving here, if you could just stand where you are, we want to honor you um, here as a congregation. If you've served, you are serving. Come on, let's give it up for them. And then, can we pray again? Can we pray? Lord God, we thank you for these people that are standing. We know they represent such a large number of people that have sacrificed for this nation. Whether it's a season, whether it's their lives, Lord God, there have been millions upon millions who have sacrificed so that we can have the freedom we have. And then we also, just as a church, we pray for those people who this season is a season of of remembering. This season is a season of grief and, and mourning, Lord God. And we lift them up to you. Lord God, help them to find hope, help them to find peace that's beyond understanding, God, and be with them. You said blessed are those who mourn, and those that are mourning a loved one that served us and died for our freedom, be with them in this season. And then as this video reminded us, Lord God, help it to challenge us, help it to inspire us, Lord God, as we fight a fight that's not against flesh and blood, but we're, we're still called. God, you've, you've called us to minister the gospel. So I pray that that would challenge us and inspire us to be courageous and to show the greatest love, laying down our lives, God, whether that's uh, physically or, or just day in, day out, serving you. God, help us to take up our cross and follow you, but bless each and every person that served in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, here at City Life, last week, we were working through our three old treasures, three things that help us with our message and our mission here at City Life. Last week, we talked about the goodness of God. We talked about the centrality of the church. And if you missed it, you can podcast it at citylifeva.com backslash Suffolk. But tonight, we're going to dig deeper into the potential of people because we believe in the potential of people. We believe that we're here to reach people that have purpose, potential, and destiny in their lives. And one of the things we're doing coming up is discovering city life. And we've been plugging this for a couple of weeks. And schedule-wise, it's, it's kind of up in the air because different schedules are lining up different ways. But we're going to find a way to meet with every one of you and, and talk about who we are as a church, get to know you better. So if you're interested in that, discovering more about us and, and meeting with Steph and I, some of our elders, then there's a sign-up sheet at the information center on your way out. And you can sign up on your way out. But hopefully, if you've been coming here for a few weeks, a month, two months, however long since we launched in January, that you wouldn't describe us as a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Anybody know what that's from? Right, Star Wars, A New Hope. I got to explain myself sometimes from here, but youth, youth, I would have to explain myself. One time in youth, I was like, how many people have watched Star Wars? Less than half raised their hands. So I feel at home tonight because that is from Star Wars, A New Hope, when they're walking into Moss Eisley and uh, Luke, who's been raised on a farm, right? Ben Kenobi's like, hey, bro, we're about to walk into a place. And he says, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And we're going somewhere with that, but just a rabbit trail. I find it ironic that there was a more wretched place of scum and villainy 
right around the corner at Jabba the Hutt's that he found not too long after that. You know, like a guy who is a giant slug, keeps people frozen in carbonite for a conversation piece, and feeds people to a monster in his basement. That is more wretched villainy. But, uh, like, compared to that, Masa Isley is like your neighborhood Applebee's or Chili's or Ruby Tuesday's. But, uh, so, I don't know what you're talking about, Ben Kenobi. But, here, a description, a dimly lit tavern known for its strong drinks, hot tunes, and occasional outbreaks of shocking violence. I found that on Yelp. But, uh, as they walk in, the bartender turns to them and says, we don't serve their kind here. Talking about the droids that were walking in with them. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. And according to friends of George Lucas, he threw that in there as a uh, reference to segregation and racism that was going on at that time. But there are also many people who treat Star Wars like it's the real deal. There are like Star Wars encyclopedias and Wikipedias online. And there's a theory that because the droids, they don't eat or drink, that they were just going to be a waste of space in there. So, like, we don't even want them in here wasting space. So, they're not welcome here. We don't have that problem. I don't know about y'all. I like to eat and drink. This weekend, I might do a lot of it. We might have an altar call for gluttony where I'll meet you right here for all the hot dogs and burgers we eat over this weekend. But uh, we don't have that problem, not eating or drinking. And just as a moment of participation as we get rolling tonight, if you could have dinner, sit down at a table, share a meal with anybody on the planet, who would it be? Dustin, thanks for breaking the ice. George Washington. Let's go with living. <laughs> Good answer, though. Good answer. Because if we go heaven, like Noah, Moses, like you're just going to line them up, knock them down, right? <laughs> Wayne. Stephen Hawking. Yep. Anybody else? Somebody you would, if you could get a couple hours, share a meal. Bono. That would be cool. Do you have your hand up? Oh, in the back, sorry. Ted Nugent? Nice. <laughs> the Nugent. Carol Shelby? Nice, working our way. Anybody else? Dean. Franklin Graham? Good one. I know for me, not only because I enjoy his books and his thoughts, but Ravi Zacharias, because we're also adopting from India. So, two-edged sword there. Both sides of the coin. Get to talk about all kinds of stuff. Anybody else? Somebody you would want to eat with? It's a cool question to consider because research has shown just as what you eat can affect you physically, who you eat with can affect you psychologically. If you eat alone, you don't eat with people, or you just eat with the wrong people, they show that it can, can shift how you raise good students. It can battle addictions and depression when you find community around a meal. It's powerful. And Americans, though... <laughs> We spend almost as much on fast food as we do groceries statistically. We've lost the, the value in a shared meal. I saw 20% of our meals as Americans we eat in our cars. 25% are fast food. So we don't always value anymore the, the value of a shared meal. But around the world, there are still cultures that hold on to this. Like, we are going to share a meal as a family. And I say still because centuries back, you go back to when Jesus walked the earth in Palestine, that, that was a, a valued thing. It carried significant meaning to share a meal with somebody. Being told we don't want to share a table with your kind, it was profound rejection. And again, in Jesus's time in that region, the religious had separated themselves from who they deemed unclean, the quote-unquote sinners, and who they deemed a wretched collection of scum and villainy in that village, right? 
But the religious leader's position spoke volumes, but it spoke volumes that inaccurately represented, excuse me, God's heart. How do we know that? Because when God's heart beat within a human chest as Jesus Christ, his dinner guests were like a who's who of people that the religious leaders rejected. Quote, unquote, those people. Again, those that the religious leaders saw no potential in. He showed us what we'll hit on again and again tonight, and that is that at God's table, everyone eats. And grace isn't just something that you say before the meal. Grace is the meal. (laughs) And amongst his dinner guests are sinner guests, and dessert is redemption, salvation, transformation, all of the above. At God's table, everyone eats. We're going to look through Luke, ironically, because we were just talking about Luke Skywalker, but multiple stories within Luke where Jesus shares a meal with people that cause some people to raise their eyebrows. We're going to look at Luke 5, verses 27 through 32, Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, and then Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, which I'm going to read right now. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. If you got your phone, you can swipe there, and then there's also Bibles under your chair. But Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is going to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, there's many brilliant thinkers and theologians and commentaries that point to that verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost as Jesus' mission statement, his vision for his life, why he was here, to seek and save the lost. And Jesus wasn't just using these meals with sinners, quote-unquote sinners, to make a point like a, a scorned lover in high school would pick up a rebound just to make their ex jealous, right, just to have dinner with them. That's not why Jesus was doing this. He didn't delineate between sinners and anyone else. On Jesus' guest list, everyone could eat even those considered scum and villainy by the leaders of the day. It's as if he was saying, if you can't see a little bit of yourself in, quote, unquote, those people, you're seeing yourself wrong because we're all sinners. We're just either self-aware sinners under grace or self-righteous sinners. And Jesus genuinely wanted to invest in relationship with the lost, so much so he was dubbed a friend of sinners. And God's criteria, Jesus' criteria, it isn't man's. God doesn't just see people and who they are now and what they've done in the past. He sees eternity that he's set in the heart of man. He sees the destiny he crafted for lives when he created the world, when they were still in the matrix of their mother's womb. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the prophet Samuel is out to anoint the next king of Israel. And God says, hey, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord He looks at the heart. See, David was a man after God's heart. 
But there is eternity in every man's heart. Again, it says that in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. It's an insatiable void in all of our hearts. For so many, it's either unawakened or it's been awakened and it's just flowing in the wrong direction. How many of you guys have ever read this book, The Ragamuffin Gospel? It's by Brennan Manning, written in 1990. And I was in the first chapter and he references Donald Trump. I'm like, man, he's everywhere. But uh, at the end of the first chapter, I just want to read this passage. Brennan Manning says, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, see Revelation 7, 9, that I shall see the prostitute from Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son, that I'll see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse but did the best she could face with grueling alternatives, The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who, as he falls asleep each night, whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. The deathbed convert who for decades had his cake and ate it, broke every law of God and man, wallowed in lust, and raped the earth. But how, we ask. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to the faith. My friends, if that is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. It's a powerful passage because you read through that list of people and you think that's wasted potential. That's, that's wretched, right? Those are, that's a, a list of, of crazy things. Scum Pharisees would have avoided people they would have shunned and yet God's grace can reach them. God's love can still reach them. God's grace can still cover them that they could still be washed white by the blood of the Lamb if they accepted his grace. It's crazy to think. You know, for talking about books, last week for the first time in three decades of my life, I finally read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, right? one of the best Christian authors, right? and uh, one of his most famous books, and I finally read it. And I don't know if you've read it or not, just in case you haven't, but uh, in The Great Divorce, talks about how the damned get a break, they kind of go on a bus up to the outskirts of heaven, and it examines this self-deception and justification we take part in when we reject God because none of them are clamoring to get into heaven. They're still deceived. And there were two opposite yet similar responses as you read through the book. One of them is, is fairly early. It's, it's a man who's, who's arrived on the outskirts of heaven, and he sees a man who had murdered, and he, he says essentially, how did you get let in here? <laughs> like, they let you into heaven. Couldn't grasp that he could have changed his life and ended up in heaven. And then there was another story further in of a woman who didn't want to be seen, as if she was thinking they would let me in there because they'll see me. They'll see who I am, the the things I've done, and she was too terrified to even step in. And as I prepped this sermon on the potential of people, I realized that those are two perspectives that can cripple us and can cripple our calling. That idea of God has room at the table for me, that he would let me into heaven with all I've done. And then the other perspective of they would let you at the table, they would let you into heaven. 
But first I want to look at the perspective of self that, man, I can really get a seat at the table. They really would let me in here because the potential of people, we have to realize that that's personal. You know, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. We've got to learn to recognize God's love for us, that God's pursued us. Again, like we talked about, Jesus came and died for us before we even knew him. God sees value in each of us. But at Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, I don't know that many things got under Jesus' skin as much as the self-righteous, the people who thought they were better than and who separated themselves from those people over there. So Jesus goes in. He doesn't take this and roll over. He, he addresses them with not just one parable, but three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. And again, if you've never heard the prodigal son, that parable, just briefly, it's about a son who asks for his inheritance, goes out and spends it on reckless living, invests all he had in it, and then finds himself at rock bottom. It says in verse 16 that the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. We know from the details of the story that he was completely distraught. He didn't have shoes, didn't have ideal clothing, and maybe people said to him like they do today, no shirt, no shoes, no service. No room at my table for you. You're filthy. You're jacked up. You can stay away. It says nobody offered anything to him. So with no other option, you might know the story, goes back home to tell his father that, hey, I'll, I'll be your servant. I'll do whatever I have to do if you just take me back in. And his father, I love it, doesn't just see him and wait for him to come in. He runs after him. And then it says when he gets there, he says, get this man a robe, a ring, and some sandals. It's as if he was saying, no shirt, no shoes, no problem, right? Come on, let's go slaughter half my farm and celebrate that you're back. Let's feast. Let's sit at the table together. Taste acceptance again. Taste of grace. And when you read this story, you've probably heard sermons. It's really about two foolish sons. You got the one son with the perspective of, you're going to let me back in after all I did? The one who was utterly humiliated and then ultimately was exalted by his father. The only one that's left to a fate we don't know about at the end of the story is the other son who was holier than now, who probably looked out the window as his brother came around the corner and thought, look at this fool. <laughs> Coming back home, looking filthy as mess. Look at this guy. Living holier than now, blind to his own brokenness. Could he ever embrace grace? But utterly humbled, the prodigal son was ultimately he was celebrated. The father was like, hey, let's throw a party in your name. And I, that's cool, but can you imagine how awkward that would be? All these servants, all the people there know what you're just coming out of. Doesn't say let them go wash up first. He's like, hey, we're going to party, so come on in. I could imagine just even avoiding eye contact at first because it would be awkward. All these people know you're dirt, and you're just walking right in off the street. But the father knew what Jesus knows, that nothing drives out shame like being fully known and still accepted. Not just accepted in his case, but delighted in. That God not only loves me as I am, he knows me as I am. And because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. One of the lies of the enemy that he'll feed people again and again is that I got to get my life right before I come to Christ. And Jesus disposed of that lie for forever because he didn't wait for sinners or lost people to come to him. He went to seek and save the lost. He went to them. 
wanted them to accept grace because then as we accept grace, God can awaken the potential that's truly in us. So if you feel disqualified, I got good news because Jesus went to the cross before any of us were ever qualified. And when we come to the table like the prodigal, barefoot and filthy, Jesus, like he did with the disciples, washes us clean because of grace. For no other reason but because of grace. So I just want to tell you, never let your perception of yourself blind you to the reception you've received in Jesus. Never let what you think about yourself hold you back from the grace that God has for you. You know, I don't remember who said it, but there was somebody who said, a saint is not someone who is good, but it's who experiences the goodness of God. Just as a truly smart man and a, and a, a really smart person knows that they don't know everything, they actually don't know a lot, a truly righteous person realizes that right, their righteousness is not their own. That really, we're broken as can be, but we stand under the grace of God. And he's healing us, he's making us whole, but outside of his grace, we're nothing. So never let your perception of yourself blind you to the reception that Jesus has for you. The seat at the table for his grace to take part in for you. Everyone eats, and grace is the main dish, and we're all invited. But when you forget both, both your past brokenness and the cost that Christ paid to invite us to the table, we can end up like the Pharisees, the brother of the prodigal, or the man who greeted the, the murderer in the great divorce and said, they let you in here? And thought, how? How? How did Jesus save a seat for you? And it speaks to seeing the, the potential in people around us. To that man, that murderer was wasted potential, too far gone for grace. But if we go to Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. It says, later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum and wretched villainy? No, they just said scum, but... Jesus would have fit in in Moss Eisley, apparently, according to the New Living Translation. He said, why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. That word, and I've come to call, it's a Greek word, kalein. It's K-A-L-E-I-N. It's a Greek word that speaks to inviting an honored guest to dinner. You know, this is another sermon for another time, but in our society, we honor very little anymore. There's not a whole lot of honor. That's why weekends like Memorial Day, where we honor those who have fallen, are so powerful. And I would say it, it's because the level of honor you give something, it reflects the level of value you see in it. If you value something, you're going to honor it. But Oscar Wilde said it himself. He said, nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I would say because of that, we honor very little because we don't see true value. So what should affect the value you see in people and, and making a person worthy of honor? Again, to go back to C.S. Lewis, I think I've quoted this before from the same pulpit. He said, there are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. You go all the way back to Genesis 1.27. It says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Honor sees the supernatural behind the natural. That no person is ordinary or common. That each person is handcrafted by God. His signature is on them. And there's potential in them that can be awakened through a life in him, waiting to be unlocked by the grace of God. These are the eyes that Jesus viewed the world with when he invited those that were viewed as scum and wretched to the table. He wanted to share a table and indicate acceptance. It was a method of relating intimately in that culture. I was reading a commentary, and the guy said, I'll just quote him. It said, Jesus's sinner guests were well aware that the table fellowship entailed more than mere politeness or courtesy. It meant peace, acceptance, reconciliation, and brotherhood. Peace and reconciliation for all without exception, even for the moral failures. You know, this word reconciliation should ring a bell because that's what we're, as the church, is called to. You look at 2 Corinthians 5 where we're given the ministry of reconciliation. And one of the ways Jesus did that is to come to the table with people who were seen as outcasts, too far gone for grace. And then you see in Acts chapter 10, Peter, early leader of the church, challenged by God to go out and visit Cornelius. And we're not going to read the whole story, but Peter's up there praying on a roof because that's just a cool place to pray at a, a town with lots of harbors. We probably had a dope view. It's noon. They're cooking up lunch. He's probably hungry, and he has this vision. Three times God lets this sheet down with all these animals that were deemed unclean, and he said, rise, kill, and eat. And all the carnivores and bacon lovers said amen. <laughs> but the sheet, the food in the vision wasn't just about the food on the table. It was about the people that were called to have a seat at the table. It wasn't just about food, although it was about that, not deeming unclean what Jesus and God call clean, but it was about the people who should have a seat at the table in the church. For the church to reach outsiders, Peter would have to go outside, out of his comfort zone. It wasn't about just eliminating unclean food. It was about eliminating the idea that somehow unclean people weren't to be in contact with, weren't to be trifled with, weren't to be invited to the table. So Peter goes off to Cornelius' house. Again, you can read it later. It's in Acts 10. And he opens with this. Every time I read it, I shake my head. But he says, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. His greeting sounds like some backwards Jim Crow nonsense. Like, you see racism throughout the Bible, and then we think, oh, we're good. We're done with it. But, man, it just rears its ugly head again and again. He says, Culturally, essentially he says, culturally, I shouldn't even be sharing a table with you because I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. But, he says, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So Peter shares, stays at their household. The Holy Spirit falls. Everyone there is filled with the Spirit. It's amazing. And then he goes back to the leaders. And what's their response in Acts chapter 11? You did what with who? That was their response to a massive move of God. The first Gentiles being filled with the Spirit, and that was their response. And Peter basically said, hey, God did it. If you've got a problem with it, take it up with God. But what's funny is you continue to read through the New Testament. You get to the letter of Galatians where Paul is writing, and he talks about an incident with Peter where Peter had fallen back into this idea of 
of separating people. Where he had been eating with his Gentile, spirit-filled friends, probably eating bacon, thinking, man, how did I live before I had any of this, right? Pulled pork, like, man, what was I missing? And then it says that conservative Jews showed up, ones that believed in old prejudices and divisions, and Peter pulled back, switched tables. And Paul confronted him because he wasn't having any of it. He's like, bro, you were just eating pulled pork over here, and now you're going to try to separate yourself. Why the change of heart? And Paul says in Galatians 2.15, we Jews know we have no advantage of birth over the non-Jewish sinners. Paul was saying, hey, share the table. Stop misrepresenting the heart of God that says everyone eats, everyone's invited. Again, we're not just talking about meals where you say grace and then eat food either. We're talking about welcoming all to the table, the place of fellowship, the place of encountering God to partake in grace, his body, his people, the church. We should have a seat open for, for everyone because God doesn't have a, a kitty table. You guys are ever, Thanksgiving for you guys, is it a big deal? Like you get all the family together. My side of the family, we're pretty like rigid about that. We're going to try to get everyone together. That side of the family is like, hey, you know what? Let's see each other at Christmas. We could do it if we want, but like she jokes because my side of the family is like, are we coming together or what? Let's squad up, get everybody in here. We got five nephews now and a niece that are all under seven years old. So it isn't even just Thanksgiving anymore, but how many of you guys are familiar with the kitty table, right? You've got the adults. This would be like the adult table here, and the kitty table is like over here, <laughs> right? And you got to sit over here, and the idea is that, you know, you don't want them making a stinking mess at the table because you got the nice silverware out. You got the, the good glasses that you only bring out once a year. You don't want a kid knocking that off the table. You've got the placemats that you got to wash to clean, so you put all the kids over there with their little sippy cups and plastic plates and whatever kind of weird conversations they have and them touching each other all night. So you can go over there and have your adult conversation, right? Am I right? Because otherwise there's a volcano explosion of spills and just recklessness over at the adult table. So, but I can remember, I don't remember what Thanksgiving it was or how old I was when I graduated to the adult table. It was like amazing. I got to have the, the knife that was actually made for cutting meat right? I got to uh, drink water out of like something resembling a wine glass, all the good crystal stuff, all the good silverware. I got to use the placemat. That meant I could actually eat my food without spilling everywhere. I got to partake in adult conversation. I can't remember what Thanksgiving it was, how old I was, but I remember if this was a video game, that was like leveling up. Like I just reached the next level because I'm now at the adult's table. But see, God has one table, there's no this table over here, that table over there. You're not good enough for this table yet, so you got to stay over at the kitty table. God doesn't have a kitty table. And we think, man, but, but they'll make a mess, right? Just messy people with stains on their life will put a strain on ministry. But if our ministry isn't reaching messy people, ministering to, to people like that, then I, do we really have a ministry? Because, again, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the messy and at God's table, everyone eats. He does not have a kiddie table. His dinner guests included sinner guests. And at the end was redemption because they all partook in grace. You know, if we never see the undevoted, the lost, the spiritually, quote, unquote, messy people walking through our doors on a Saturday, then that just speaks to how we're living Sunday through Friday. Just means that we, as a body, aren't doing life the right way. Because we, we look at the people we do life with. You know, you want 
the core around you. You want Pauls in your life that when you're screwing up because, hey, bro, as Fred would say, their nose give you pause. You want people around you that are edifying you, encouraging you. But you want, we got to be reaching people, investing in people that don't know Jesus. If we don't, who will? Am I right? And I have to take this into account. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I work at NRBC, surrounded by other pastors. We study. We pray. We have meetings together with a bunch of other pastors. And I've realized I got to get out of here. This is like, it's great, all that's great, but it's like a booby trap if I'm not getting out, especially here in our new stomping grounds, to reach people, to invest in people that don't know Jesus. I've had to challenge myself. I realize it's like late Wednesday, and I've been in my office all week. I've got to get out. I've got to go spark conversations. got to go talk to people about who they are and what Christ is doing in me. Otherwise, I'm, I'm doing life wrong because you look at Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. I love the message version of Matthew's account of the key verse we read from Luke, and it reads like this. It says, I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. It's always <laughs> it's powerful when you read it that way. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. And yes, he had quote-unquote insiders who he was discipling. you got to have both sides of the coin, evangelism and discipleship. Jesus clearly had the 12 disciples, but he said, I'm here to invite outsiders. And Jesus' mission statement, his mission in life became our great co-mission, our call and our command. You know, the prefix on that word means he's with us, it's the co-mission. He said in the Great Commission, he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. He's right here longing to do through us what he did throughout his life. You want to meet Jesus, grow in Jesus, go where he would have been. He'll meet you there, reaching people, reaching the lost, where his grace wants to meet them. And the key is that we got to realize the potential of people. Like 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read, look past the appearance and, and see their heart, that their heart has eternity in it, that God created it, that there's a purpose and a destiny that he wants to draw out of them. And let's not forget that the church, in a way, is a lot like Mos Eisley. It's full of wretched. It's for the wretched. God saved a wretch like me, saved a wretch like you. He wants to save a wretch like that person we may have given up on. May we never forget that they let me in here a mess. When I was 21, I went to the church where I got saved at. I was truly a wretch. I was all the adjectives that we want Kenobi use. I was scum. I was villainous. I had hit rock bottom. Maybe that's not your story. But we got to remember, outside of Jesus, where are we? Come on, outside of the grace of God, where are we? But they let me in here. <laughs> they let you in here. And we don't exist for the people who think they've got it 100% together. And maybe they left their last church because it only had it 90% together, and they had it 100% together. Again, don't look for a perfect church because it's going to be imperfect as soon as you step foot in it. We exist for the broken and discouraged, the bent and bruised disappointments, the beat up, and the burnout so that they can pull up to the table, say grace, and then receive grace. There's a great quote by a guy named Carlo Corretto. He uh, was a part of an order not unlike uh, Mother Teresa's order. And he has this great quote. I'm going to try to pull it up on the screen. It says, what we love in a person is what already is. Virtue, beauty, courage, and health. hence our love is self-interested and fragile. God, excuse me, I think I don't have the beginning of the quote up there. I'm going to start from the beginning because it's that good. I want you to hear, at the very beginning it says, God loves what is not yet. God loves what is not yet. What is still to come to birth. Potential. What we love in a person is what already is. Virtue, beauty, 
courage, and hence our love is self-interested and fragile. God loving what is not yet continually begets us since love is what begets. Love is what helps us emerge from our darkness and draws us to the light. And this is such a fine thing to do that God invites us to do the same. God loves what is not yet, what is still to come to birth. And this is such a fine thing to do that he invites us to do the same. Dare to love people when they're in a season of not yet. You might not even like the person how they are currently. You might not be able to respect the person because of what they've done in the past. In those moments, have the faith like Jesus to love what's not there yet and to love it out of them and to shine light until the darkness is removed. If we could have the worship team come up, come on, as we close all these stories about Jesus pulling up a table with the lost, the broken, people frowned upon in society, I want to close with a story from Matthew 22. It's Matthew 22, 11. It's the parable of the, weddings, the wedding feast. And there's a wedding feast, a banquet that's been put together. The invites are put out. People show up. They're halfway through the whole party. And then the, the host of the party comes out and realizes that somebody isn't adequately dressed. They don't have the, the proper attire to show honor to the new couple in that culture. And he says, get this guy some shoes and a shirt. We're going to party with him. No, it's not what he says. He actually says, bind him up, throw him outside, because he clearly wasn't prepared. And you read that and you think, doesn't that just contradict everything we just talked about tonight? Doesn't that contradict the idea that everyone's welcome at the table? Isn't this the complete opposite that we're reading? But this is all an analogy to the the wedding feast that's going to take part in heaven between Jesus and his bride, the church. And you know what? You're going to be there, again, not on our own merit. If we're going to be there, it's going to be there because we're going to be there because we're we're under Jesus' blood. And any righteousness we have that led us in the door is something that he's given us. That's the attire that we need. And if they hadn't placed their faith in Jesus, they were tossed out. You know, there comes a time when potential has an expiration date. At the end of your life, you've either given yourself to him, surrendered yourself in love to God, or or you haven't. And we don't know when that day is for the people around us. We don't know when that day is for ourselves. You know, The Great Divorce is a great book, but even C.S. Lewis in his introduction says, this isn't how it's gonna work. This is just a vision I had. You're not gonna be able to welcome people to the outskirts of heaven so that you could try to sell them on God again. We don't know if it's our one chance and if we'll ever have a second chance to share the gospel, share what we have. We should be compelled to share. Even with people who seem like they lack potential or like they're on the other side of a barrier. You know, God called Peter to reach out to Cornelius. And I love that by the time Peter got there, God had already been working on Cornelius' heart. This was a righteous dude. God had been working on his heart and the Holy Spirit is the one that filled him and transformed him. All Peter had to do was be faithful to get up, get out and reach the outsider. And again, Peter, when he shows up, he basically says, I shouldn't even be associating with you. And when Jesus associated with the lost, the religious leaders say, hey, you shouldn't be associating with them. They're scum. (laughs) You know what? Our culture hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still good at drawing lines between us and them, between the church and those people. But the single most revolutionary act we as the church can take in an increasingly corrupt culture is to love more. Arguing can get exhausting. Trying to prove yourself right rarely works. 
And I'm not saying loving can't be exhausting as well, but it's more effective and it's definitely more fulfilling. You know, there's a great quote by a, a, a spoken word artist, Propaganda, heard it again last night. He said, being right is a distant second to the joy of compassion. Why don't you come stay a while? Pull up a chair, partake in grace with somebody else who needs it because we need it. <laughs> if words are, are truly weapons, like it says in the Bible, words have the power of life and death. Too often we use them like chairs in WWE to, to hit people with. When God was, hey, pull up, pull out a chair, offer a chair to those people you want to smack because there's potential in them. You might not even like them how they are now. You might not be able to respect them because of what they've done, but dare to love them because of what God can do in them. And God will meet you in those places. Again, Jesus wants to meet us out there, reaching the outsider like he did. He wants to meet us here. He wants to meet us now. He wants to transform us, but he wants to fill us and equip us for the work of ministry. I don't know who said it first, but I'll quote it till I die, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Love can open the door for the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Relationship can be that bridge that the Holy Spirit walks across to get to that heart. Again, that opening quote from Brennan Manning, what a list. It's people we would give up on, people we would see as wasted potential, people we would call long shots, people the Pharisees may have called a, a, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. But Jesus died to save a wretch like me. Jesus died to save a wretch like you. Jesus died to save a wretch like them. We don't walk past anyone who Jesus didn't die for, who doesn't have an eternity and a calling. Come on, let's let that compel us. As we stand, we're going to go back into worship, but as we stand, I just want to challenge you guys. This week, welcome somebody to the table that needs Jesus. Come on, as we stand, I just want to challenge you that it might not be a literal dinner. It might be going on a lunch break with somebody you know you know God's calling you to reach. It might be coffee. It might just be an intentional, timely conversation. And you might think, man, I got a lot on my plate. <laughs> you read Luke 19, Jesus is walking through Jericho to get to Jerusalem where he's going to die as a sacrifice for all of humanity. Jesus had a little bit on his plate. He probably had a lot on his mind as he's walking through Jericho, but he saw Zacchaeus. God prompted his heart and he said, hey, I want to go to your house today spend time with you today. May we do the same with our time. May we do the same with our love as his church. Come on, Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes, not only to the potential in people, but the potential in us. God, you've called us. You've commissioned us. Your mission statement became our great commission. God, and you're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. God, I pray that you would lead us, God, into just divine appointments with people. Again, Peter went and saw Cornelius. You were already at work. Your spirit did the heavy lifting. God, help us to realize that it's not above us. It's not beyond us. But you've placed a call on our life to go out and reach those people that others have given up on. Other churches, other religious may have given up on, Lord God. Help us to have your heart that came to seek and save the lost. God, help us to realize you are a good father, like the father of that prodigal son. And God, it... it he showed up filthy. He showed up with no reason that he should have let him back in. God, but he said, hey, get this guy some clothes, some shoes, and let's pull up a seat at the table for him. And God, I pray that our perception of ourselves, no matter what we've done this week, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we're going to do, 
that it will never get in the way of the reception that waits for us at the table of grace every day. God, I know I personally need your grace like the air I breathe. I need it every day. I can't go without the gospel and the good news, and I pray that I wouldn't let people around me go without it. God, renew our perspective and our passion for the people around us. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship our good Father.